0: C4 Church. glad you're here this morning. Good morning to many of you watching and listening online. We're so glad that you're joining us here this morning wherever you might be today. Well, we're now into this series called The Church United, our second series this year out of the book of Ephesians. And I thought I would begin my message today by demonstrating what we have been learning all year long through the book of Ephesians. And also demonstrating biblically and also here by picture of what God is actually doing among us week after week in this unique God season. Imagine that this is us, a sponge. And one thing we all know about a sponge is it actually takes up the environment that it's in. And so I want you to see this. Because this is what we've been learning all year. This is what the human condition looks like without God. We are soaked in death and in sin and in trespass. The Bible says that we are dead in our sins and trespass. We're separated from God. There's no way we can reach out. This is the environment we live in. But as we've been learning, there is good news of great joy for all people, right? We've been learning that God didn't leave us in this condition of blackness and in sin and death. That God the Father decided before the beginning of time to call us out. Jesus, when he was dying on the cross, thought of us by name and took his wrath, took our sin, and dealt with the devil. And the Spirit of God gives us the ability to encounter God. Is that not the good news? And so this is what God does. He takes us out of death and he begins to do this. Ouch. (laughs) But what's actually very interesting is, though we are now out of that environment... Look, the old life is not completely gone. We're still marked by it. We still continue to struggle with the unholy trinity of the world and the flesh and the devil. And yet God, because he is a good dad and loves us and has called us, as Pastor Gary just prayed, to be free, continually over time plunges us into new environments and gets rid of that old life. And keeps plunging us into another new environment and getting more of that old life out. And does it again and again and again. See, this is what is happening in this church. That if you are a Christian this morning, you have already been called out of this dark environment. And as you become more faithful in your walk, as you decide, and we as a people, we, the Church United, decide, we want to walk in the freedom already given to us, God keeps plunging us into his spirit, plunging us into his word, and getting rid of that old life. And the more secrets are revealed in this church, and the more pain in history is dealt with, the more, the more we look like this and the less we look like this. See, this is why we're praying for renewal and revival and awakening in this church. This is why we've decided we're not playing church anymore. We want God to show up and do whatever he wants for his glory, our freedom, so the world can see Jesus clearly. We want a church to continually be saturated by God and this old stuff to be removed. See, this is what Paul taught us last week, remember? Put off the old life and walk in the new life you've already been given. And this is why we are in this unique God season. Not because we're a better church or we're more spiritual, but we systematically, more and more of us, are making the decision that we are going to trust God, love God, and say to him, do whatever you must in me because I don't want the old life in me anymore. And as that continues to grow, and the sponge continues to get squeezed, and the old stuff gets out, people around us are going to say, you are different, and awakening will come. Now last week, if you were with us, I think many people would say it was a moment for our church. Last week, all of us, if you were here, began to really get the depth, the real picture of unity. We began to see the real call for unity, the real promise actually of unity, and the great promise of freedom if we as individuals and as a church say yes. Last week, in detail, Paul walked through with us what we had to throw off. He said, You need to, if you are a Christian, under the power of God, get rid of lying in the church, bitterness, rage, anger, malice unforgiveness speech that is harsh and no one is allowed to steal any longer and he was very clear that if we continue though we are already out of this environment if we continue to flirt with our old life he says right in Ephesians four twenty seven, habitual unrepented sin will give the devil a foothold in the church and in you and he says don't go back to that any longer Now what I love about Paul is he didn't just show us the problem, he actually gave us an answer. He declared how we can move after God has put us out of this bowl into these bowls. And he summarized it in one sentence, and it was this, Ephesians 4.32, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ, God, what? Say it loud. Forgave you. you. See, this is how the shadows of the old life that are all among us still and need to be removed are overcome. Paul begins his conversation and he says, Look, church, you have to think on Jesus' forgiveness towards you before you'll ever have the ability, want, desire, or calling to forgive anyone else. Church unity stands and falls on forgiveness. And he says, you must look upon the glorious face of Christ, but you also must look here. If you don't really believe this is where you came from, you will not truly believe you've been forgiven for much. And you will not forgive others much. Paul says, think about what I've taught you. You were an enemy of God. You were owned by the devil. You were marked by sin. And God called you out of this and he forgave you. And not only did he forgive you there, past tense, he does it for us all the time. Everything we've ever done against God, in private, in public, what we've forgotten about and what still haunts us today, Jesus says to us at this moment, because his word says it, I choose not to ever use any of us against you because I am love. Every time you and I fall, every time we mess up in small or large ways, Jesus gets down on his knees and washes our feet again and says, let me serve you. Let me give you grace again. Yes, I'm holy. Yes, I'm God in flesh, but I love you so deeply that when I declared on the cross, it was finished. I meant it. It is already on my body. I forgive you. Don't forget forgiveness is not forgetting. Many of us will never be able to forget things done to us. And Jesus will never forget because he's God. He remembers all things. And it's not even about a lack of justice. If things have been done, justice must be served. But see, forgiveness is a choice. Forgiveness is a crisis of the will. And it is giving up our rights to God to hurt people back. Because that's exactly what Jesus has done for us. Forgiveness, as our care pastor Gary uses this example, he says, forgiveness is assuming personal responsibility for the emotional pain and consequences of another person's sin. He says, you want the church to be real? You don't want to just play church or consume church? You want church to be real? Then this has to mark every relationship, every family, every connect group, or it will die. But Paul roots it not in our moralism or not in us just pulling our bootstraps up so we feel more important, not by self-power. He says, because you continually are experiencing this in Jesus, you will have the power to do this for other people. So he says, do you really want to do church? Do you really want to see the kingdom of God, the reign and rule of God come on earth? Then this is what we're all called to do. Now in chapter 5, if you've got a Bible, you can flip there or navigate there. To Ephesians 5. Paul is on a roll, and if Paul was standing here today, he'd be saying, I'm actually not done. Actually, I need to keep talking about unity for a bit, and I actually need to address some other trespasses or sins or some vices that I mentioned in chapter 4, but but I, I need to really work them through. So this is how Paul continues his conversation about we're all in this together. How, how we're called to be the church united. He says in chapter 5, verse 1, these words, Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us, and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. He starts the conversation by saying, Imitate or follow God's example, his love, his forgiveness. Here it is, everyone ready? His laying down of his own rights for the sake of others. But notice how he addresses us. This is so important before we get into this sermon. And I just want to say this right up front. This is going to be a difficult sermon, and it's at least a PG-13, okay? No, I'm serious. It may be a double A. We'll see. Or R if you're in America. Okay, so... No, really. So, as dearly loved children... See, this is how he starts the conversation before he talks about disunity. He says, look, he knows that when he calls us out, the first thing as Christians or as seekers we're going to do is hide, we're going to get defensive, or in some way we're going to question if we even have a relationship with God. He's deeply concerned that false guilt or the devil or your own heart is going to accuse you. So Paul begins his conversation again before he confronts us and says... Since you are loved already, since you have experienced God the Father's election and love already, since you are accepted by Jesus and his work already, since the Holy Spirit is inside of you already, since God is holding you in his arms until Jesus returns already, I want you to know that your dearly loved children are ready. I don't want you to forget this as I confront some of the old life in you. You are dearly loved children. This is how God sees you right now. And I remind you this morning as I begin to really preach that love isn't here affection or friendship or sexual love. This is agape love. And let me preach this for the sixth time in this last year. What does the Bible define as love? It's not what our culture says is love and it's not what we feel in and out. He says in 1 Corinthians thirteen four, love is patient, love is kind, love does not envy, love does not boast, love is not proud, love is not rude, self-seeking, or easily angered, love keeps no record of wrongs, love does not delight in evil, it rejoices with truth, love always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. See, let me say this again. Why are we dearly loved children this morning? Because Jesus has been patient with us. He forgives us time and time again. Why are we dearly loved children this morning? Because Jesus is kind towards us. He never gives us what we deserve. By the way, Jesus does not envy because he knows better and he is better. He doesn't have an envy problem. Jesus has no need to boast and Jesus doesn't need to be proud. Do you know why? And he's not even rude. Because he has nothing to prove. Have you ever thought about that? Jesus has nothing to prove. He is not motivated by competition, anger, or fear. Because he knows who he is and he's just fine, thank you very much. Think about us. How many of us are are proud or rude because we are afraid of what other people think about us? How much ungodly competition is because we're afraid that we're lesser than someone else? Jesus has no problem with any of this at all. Jesus is not self-seeking, and Jesus does not keep any record of wrongs. That would be a amen moment. No, think about this. This is true. Some of you as Christians still live your life thinking that he's got some list upstairs. You know, he's like a bad Santa. Oh, no, he's not. He died, so that stuff is gone. He loves us, and he does not keep our sin against us. And not only that, I love this even more. Jesus is not easily angered. So many of you act in your Christian walk like he's up there flipping out every time we miss the mark. No, he is not easily angered. He hates evil. He loves good. He always protects. He's full of hope. He's fully trustworthy, and he never gives up. And all of that is directed at you. We are dearly loved children. That is our identity in this world. So he says, since this is true, since we can know that we know that we know this is true, because what he did on the cross is proof that this is what he is, Never forget, it says in the Bible that his sacrifice was a fragrant offering to God. Now that's weird language for us. But in the Old Testament, this was the language used for sacrifices. When a real sacrifice, not just a big sacrifice, but someone with a sincere heart would offer up animals or or grain, and it was real, it said that it was a great fragrance in God's nostrils. I know it's weird, but get the imagery. What he's basically saying is, this is something deeply acceptable to God. Sweet savor, the best taste, the most beautiful of gifts. From down here, let's be honest, the cross, the cross can only look like torture, horror, injustice, anarchy, out of control. But from heaven's view, it was pure, costly, reckless love that filled the heavens with a fragrance. It's like, I don't know if you've ever broken a perfume bottle before and it just fills the house This is sort of what God felt when Jesus died for us. It filled the whole universe with love itself. And the greatest act of love, just before Jesus was crucified, is he wrestled in the garden and he said, Dad, I don't really want this cup. But then he said it at the crux of his existence, at the crux of purpose and life and calling. Jesus then says, but not what? My will but your will be done. At that moment, we know he is love because he gave up his rights for us. Now, why does that matter? Here it is. Paul says, if that is all true, and if you've accepted this, then each one of us here today, if you're a Christian, now has to imitate him. Every Christian has to imitate the crucified Christ. This is the glue for participating in real church and not just playing church or consuming church like a drive through on Sunday. Church is not disposable, everyone. It's the very body of Jesus. You just can't come in and say, thanks for the song and the talk, and I'm out. No, no, no. This isn't Tim Hortons. This is eternity. And he says the glue that keeps us together is this idea of imitating Christ. So Paul says, I need to keep talking to you about what you need to keep putting off. So as you keep putting this off, more and more of that old life will be ripped out of you, and renewal will come in your own heart. Revival will sweep across the church, and awakening will come upon all the people. So Paul says, if he was sitting here, hey everyone, if we're really all in this together, And we know who God is. God is like an ever-increasing flood of holiness who will not relent because of his own glory. And he has a deep, deep fatherhood-like longing for our freedom because he wants us to walk with him again without shame like we did in the garden. If this is true, then he says, we need to call darkness, darkness. We need to call disunity disunity. We need to call a spade a spade. For only when we know what is not of God, only when we know what the word of God says, only when we willingly don't hide from the God that loves us, but look into his face, when this happens, we will begin to see what wedges us between us and God. We will know what could destroy us and threaten the unity of our church. And so when we look and hear without defense or posture, and we begin to pray and walk in the freedom he's already given us, and imitate God himself, freedom comes. So Paul says, you dearly loved children, you saints, I must keep going, because so much is at stake. So Paul says, I, let me start in a place that you probably don't want me to, but I'm going to. He says, let's just talk about sex. Ooh, junior high moment. Dead silent. Half of your eyes just hit the roof. No, no. Okay. Now, I want to take a moment, before I preach you what Paul says, to read what one historian wrote about the sexual worldview and experience in the Greco-Roman worldview. This is what he said. Sexual attitudes in Roman times are very similar to ours today, but actually, believe it or not, probably a little bit more blatant. Often a double standard, he writes, existed so wives were expected to have sexual relationships only with their husbands. Chastity by a woman was really valued, not necessarily practiced, but valued. But men, eh, they had some other options, we'll say. They had various sexual outlets. As long as they never committed adultery with another man's wife, everything else was okay. A famous statement illustrates the laxity. Mistresses we keep for the sake of pleasure, concubines for the daily care of our persons, but wives, ah, wives, to bear us legitimate children and to be faithful guardians of our household. How nice for boys. Cicero wrote approvingly of this and actually said that young men, teenagers and young adult men, it was a great thing for them to have affairs with courtesans. Prostitution was much more open there than even today. It was both religious and secular. Homosexuality, bisexuality, it was all very common. And not only that, one of the most terrible things is many slaves were abused sexually. Now into that world, Paul is writing to a group of Christians just like us. And I would say it is no different for us today. The sexual experience of our culture in Toronto is very similar. And actually, Paul didn't have to deal with the internet, and we do. But this is what Paul writes, and I want to say this, I'm prefacing this, to Christians. But among you, there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity or of greed because these are improper for God's saints, God's holy people. There cannot be a hint or whiff of this, he says. Now, I want to work this out because sexual immorality, impurity, and greed, all are sexual statements. And and let me start with the first one, sexual immorality. Sexual immorality in in Greek is a word porneia where, can anyone guess, we get our word pornography from. That's right. And and, and the word in Greek was a catch-all phrase for all sorts of sexual acts. And so, don't get defensive, just hear this. This is what the dictionary porneia means. It was used for adultery. So if you are married and you went out and had an affair, virtually or physically or emotionally, pornea. If you were living outside of marriage, even in a common law state, pornea. If you were involved in any sort of same-sex sexual acts, the word pornea is used in the Bible. Bestiality falls under this. And not only that, incest falls over this. Now, is this saying that all these things are equal? No. But this is what the Bible says is porneia. Metaphorically, it was used for worshiping idols. And so the idea was when people would bow down to false gods and eat food in front of them and sometimes have sex with prostitutes, that was common, that also was called porneia. See, you've got to understand that if you're a Christian, I'm going to say that again, if you're a follower of Jesus, the Bible is clear and Paul's worldview is rooted in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. That God created Adam and Eve and they are the model for everybody. Marriage between a man and a woman in Scripture reflects the image of God. Like the Trinity, when a husband and wife have mutual consenting sex, not forced, but mutual sex together, it says they become one, and yet they're two different people. They share the fundamental sameness together, and yet they're two different persons. See, all other sexual acts lack the dimension of the God we've been created in the image of. See, that's why it's all wrong. Because it does not reflect the one who has created sex. Is our God against sex? Absolutely not. It was his idea in the first place. My boss made it. It's great. And it needs to be worked on. My connect group last night, we actually are doing a marriage thing. And last night was the sex talk. And we were talking. We were praying as a connect group that our sex lives would get better in the name of Jesus. People think we're prudes in the church. No, we're not. Oh, uh, yeah, that's right. Oh, there's clapping. Mm, mm. Yes. Some of the spouses are like, sit down. All right please. But here's the point. It is declaring that all of these acts cannot be done in the church. And here's the real root that really is interesting. It goes way beyond politics or rights. As Jesus gave up his life as a worthy offering to God, as Jesus gave up everything for God's will as worship, so we, if you are a Christian, have to give up our sexual wants, desires, and dreams for God himself, so we will become a fragrant offering to God too. See, sex is about worship, not about rights. Can I say it? Sex is about worship, not about rights for Christians. This is what Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, very famous. It was like Las Vegas on steroids in its day. It was known for religious prostitution. He said in verse, 1 Corinthians 6.15, do you not know that your, members, uh, your bodies are members of Christ himself? Let me just stop right there. Do you see that? We are part of Christ's body. We are actually part of Jesus himself. We're all in this together. Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in the body? For it is said the two will become one flesh. But he who unites himself with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from porneia. flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins, sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that you are the temple? Your bodies are the temples of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, who you've received from God. Uh oh. You are what? Not your own. You've been bought with a price, therefore honor God with your bodies. You and I as Christians do not own our sexuality or our bodies. It says that we're married to Jesus. That is, we are in a covenant relationship with Jesus and how we think and act with our bodies matter. Now, I I, got to catch this this morning. I'm not talking about struggling here, by the way. I'm not even talking about temptation or being inclined one way or another sexually. Struggle, sexual orientation, and temptation is not what Paul is dealing with. And by the way, struggle, sexual orientation, and temptation are not sin. But the real issue is this. When we as Christians begin to justify and affirm what the Bible says is wrong, and we start being very unclear that, you know, this is okay, it's sin. I'm starting to talk about when we justify sexual acts, that Jesus, our King, God the Father, our Creator, and the Holy Spirit, the Righteous One, who makes us like Christ, is saying no to. See, you'll know that you're crossing the line sexually. I don't care how old you are. You know you'll begin to compromise, and and threatening, by the way, the unity of this church, when you start saying things like, well, God would never deny my natural desires, I don't have to explain myself to you or anyone else, thank you very much, it's my body and my rights. God made me this way, or as long as we're consenting, it's okay, or if it doesn't hurt anyone, why does it matter? Now, that may be the thinking of our culture. That's foundational. That is the glasses of how great, smart, loving people think, and if I was not a Christian, I'd be the first one agreeing with them, but since we have met Jesus, and we've been brought out of darkness, and we have the glasses of faith, this cannot be our view any longer. Why? Because we are willing slaves to Jesus Christ, syncretism is not allowed in the church and if we believe that our sexual view has more power than the bible then our worship is violated truth is violated authority is not submitted to and humility is denied the world can say what it wants it's fine But we who are followers of Jesus Christ must be willing worshipers of Jesus. And since we're the body of Christ and the unity of the church matters more than what we want, we say, Jesus, take my sexuality and use it as worship. Now interesting, you notice how he uses the word greed when talking about sex? Very interesting. Because greed in Greek can read instability. Greed is ruthless. We all know it. Greed motivates all the other thins, sins. Greed is the gas for all other sins. Think about it. Pride is declaring to God, I know better than you. I will run my life the way I want. Greed is desire put into action. I, it takes the place of God. Greed, not God, determines what I want. Greed is to want more than we have, more than we're allowed to have, more than we should have. Greed says I can go where I want, when I want, how I want, thank you, very much, and Paul says there is no room in Jesus's body for sexual immorality or greed, materialistically and or sexually. Now I could stop preaching and we'd be done, but Paul's not done. Paul says, now I know that's a lot to take in, but if he was standing here, he'd say, but actually, it's not just greed and, and, and sex. I need to cover for a moment, uh, and and there's lots of good things I could affirm, but we're dealing with vices right now. I I need to remind everyone again about how we talk to each other. I I talked about this last week, he'd say, but I need to talk about it again. So verse four, nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather uh, thanksgiving. There's no room for oral filth or dirty language in God's church. Foolish talk is when someone talks and talks and there's no substance. Ever had that conversation before? Ooh, all of us. I don't know if you've struggled with uh, being high or being drunk. But anytime you've hung out out with uh, people who are highly intoxicated, it's very interesting what they end up saying. It's foolish. And Paul is saying there is no room for that type of stuff. And by the way, there's no room for coarse joking either. Now, coarse joking doesn't mean all humor is wrong. We're not prudes. We actually need to laugh more in the church, not less. Don't you agree? We need to have fun. That's why we did, yeah, clapping, yes. The, the, The comedians in the back, that's right, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's why we produce those fun videos at Christmas. Like, we need to show the world we're good, we're fun. But coarse joking is when you know you're laughing at something God has said is a sin. And actually, humor can be the very thing that leads you into sin. Have you ever laughed at something and then told another joke and went, wow, I just violated my faith? Coarse joking, no room. There's a dynamic change between speech and the inner life. Paul said it last week, uh, Ephesians 4.29, Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who are listening. You know, unwholesome language we learned last week comes from the idea of rotting fish, uh, rotten food, uh, rotten fruit and, and stones that crumble. And he says, you've got to understand something. The very first thing God did is he spoke and the world came into existence. You've got to remember Jesus is called the Word of God. There is phenomenal power. James says that by our words, we can light a whole world on fire. Our tongue could be inspired by the devil or we can bring blessing. He says there is no room in the church for talking at the kitchen table or online or in public or in private that could rot out this church, make this church smell like crap and or break the foundation of this church like crumbling stones. There's no room in God's house any longer for slander, no, no words that tarry other Christians or non-Christians down, uh, no, no, no attacking, no blasphemy, no, no sexual talk to get someone a little aroused, no lying, no murmuring about church 24-7, no arrogant boasting, no cursing, no spreading rumors, no lies, no innuendo, no gossip. This is God's house. We are God's people. This is how this used to be, but we don't talk like darkness anymore. We talk like light. It says, if you want to deeply understand how churches stay together, you forgive one another and you use your body sexually as worship to God and also you give up your rights and you say no to greed. And oh, by the way, how we talk to each other matters because what comes out of our mouth is a real reflection of what we think in our hearts. Jesus took this so seriously. Jesus actually said in Matthew 12, 36, I tell you that everyone will give an account on the day of judgment. For every empty word they have spoken. By your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. Every word spoken. Say this loud. What is this? Good. Stop. I'm going to use this three times. This is a very important moment where we stop and don't misunderstand something. My greatest concern all week has been misunderstanding. This is not saying we can never talk about sex or have good humor or talk about people or situations because we do need to walk things through. This is a declaration that everything must be about building people up, serving others, and having the lordship of Jesus deal with this. Let me read this verse again. He says that we're not allowed to have any of this foolish talk, but he says we need to be marked as people of thanksgiving. Do you know why Thanksgiving is critical to the unity of a local church? Why it's critical to the unity of us? Here it is. When you're thankful, re- greed has no room to grow. If you're truly thankful, then you're satisfied with what you have. You don't need someone else or something else. You're okay. See, if you remove the gas from the car, which is greed, it will not start, it will not run, it will not have power. Greed is the thing that takes us down the road of sexual immorality. Greed is the thing that takes us down materialism. And greed is the thing that takes us down the path of wiping people out verbally. In Philippians 4, 12, this is what Paul wrote about being thankful. Listen, this is profound. He's, by the way, if this is true, almost all self-help books aren't needed to be written. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. Whether well-fed or hungry, living in plenty or want, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Are you joking me? This is saying that in my mystical union with Jesus through the Spirit, I can be satisfied in any situation? where I have not enough food or tons of food, where where I don't have a sexual outlet or I do have a sexual outlet, you're telling me that there is a real secret of being content in every situation? And Paul says, oh yes, I'm writing this from jail. My walk with Jesus and my thankfulness for Jesus wipes out that horrific thing called greed. And I know that I know that I'm thankful. This is profound. Because this is saying that thankfulness undercuts everything that could wipe out our church. Paul, as he's speaking or writing this, brings a chill into the air at a moment, I would say. He says to Christians, you know what I'm saying is true. It's 100%. It's legit. Like, it's the real deal. But then he says in verse 5 something that th- truly, this verse is like us opening all the doors today from the outside and inside and letting the cold air come in. We'd feel it in that, like that, right? He says, for this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person as an idol worshiper, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ or of God. If money or power or sex or sexual rights have more power than the phrase, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth, in my life as it is in heaven, you've exalted yourself above God, you've said to God, I know better than you, it is my will, not yours, and he says there's a good chance you're not a child of God. You're not saved, you're still Now, God's arms are always open. Forgiveness is always available. In this life, there's always a path home to make you a dearly loved child. But make no mistake this morning. Don't get distracted at this moment, please. Eternity is at stake right now in this room. Eternity is at stake online right now. Across Durham right now. Even if you have the title Christian But your life has never been marked by repentance or confession, but worship of these items you have to question if Jesus is your Savior and Lord. This passage assumes a huge contrast between those who know God and those who do not. Say it. Okay, this is very important for us this morning. There's panic spreading across this room right now, because so many of you are going, oh my goodness, John, if this is true, well, I must not be a Christian. I mean, are you saying I'm going to hell? Because, you know, my goodness, you want to talk about sexual history? Let's have a conversation. Or let me tell you about my mouth. Or let me tell you about greed. I I struggle so much with all this stuff. Are you saying that? No, no, hold on. Struggling people aren't dead people. Struggling is a sign of life. Disconnected and dead people never struggle. If you're struggling, it's a sign you probably are in because if you're struggling, you want to worship Jesus. And if you want to worship Jesus, you're a Christ follower because people who don't know Jesus don't want to worship him. Struggle, many of us think, is the very sign we're not in. It is the sign we're in. Those who do not struggle, those who declare, yeah, I've read my Bible and I go to church, but I don't care what God says about that, they're not in. Outright living with no repentance, with no fruit, is a sign you are not a follower of Jesus. Struggle... It's probably a great sign that you are. Now he says, Let no person deceive you with empty words. For because such things, God's wrath comes on those who are being disobedient. Now, some of you are going, John, I really like you. This is a nice church. The music's sort of cool. You wear jeans. Isn't that nice? But come on. You're a little fundy this morning. A little fire fire. I'm not sure if I like this. It can't be that bad. Yes, It is. It is. It doesn't matter what the world says. It doesn't matter what your family says. There is a judgment coming. You see, if there's no judgment, then there's not a holy God. Then there's no accountability. Who cares what you do with your life? Let's just revert back to animals and do what we must do. There is an end coming, and we will all give an account to God. And here's the point. If you do not want a genuine relationship with God through Jesus and want the things His kingdom brings in this life, He will honor that request forever. Paul writes in 2 Thessalonians 1.8, he will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with an everlasting destruction, shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Why? Because he's a mean God? No, because we have declared we don't want him. So Paul says in verse 7, church, do not partner with them. Do not go back to the deeds that you used to do. Now, I'm going to do this real quick one last time. This is not saying as Christians, we don't hang out with non-Christians. This idea of not partnering means do not do the deeds that we've all been saved from. But we are called. There is no room for the fortress mentality in the church. We are called to be with our friends and our neighbors and our families who are not Christians. Why? Because we were all in darkness once and someone lived a right Christian life and prayed for us and told us the gospel and we got saved. If there is no light and salt out in the world, how will they know? There is no room in the church for us to huddle and say, well, it's really bad and we're not going to hang out with... We don't get defiled by hanging out with people in darkness. No, no, no. They need light. We have no room for this fundamentalist attitude that says, we don't care about them. We're in and they're not. No, no. We've been saved to serve others. He says, live as children of light. Because you were once darkness, verse 8, but now you're the light of the Lord. You are what you are right now. And the fruit of light, verse 9, consists of goodness and righteousness and truth. Find out what pleases the Lord. As a Christian, read your Bible, be in community, take communion as much as you can. Find out what pleases the God that rescued you out of this life. And then live it in front of others. Why? Because it's what you were saved to do. And it fills the church with the presence and light of God and... Verse, Ephesians 4.30 and when we do it we don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God. He says in verse 11 have nothing to do with fruitless deeds of darkness but rather expose them. I mean this is really powerful. I, I, I love mushrooms. I don't know if you do. I'm pro mushroom. Um, my family isn't as much. But I hear that mushrooms grow in darkness really, really well and very quickly. Um, and And the image is this that like Darkness hides things. Darkness hides evil. It helps grow and fester things. Night has no shame when wrote. But when you live as light, when your everyday life and your words match Jesus, they expose darkness like that. And the contrast is shocking and real. He says in verse 12, it is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. But everything is exposed by the light. It becomes visible. And everything that's illuminated becomes light. You know, this is really profound. I was studying this this week about the human eye. Now, if you could go to a place on earth that was completely flat, and there was no trees, no, no rocks, no mountains. It was like, it was you know, it's basically the middle of Canada, uh, right? Flat, uh, with no wheat, and it was a pitch black night. Do you know, this is true, that the natural human eye in good state can see a candle lit 40 kilometers away? No, this is science. This isn't just, like, 40 kilometers away. You would see a pinprick of light if it was completely flat, like 40 kilometers away. That is the power of light. Darkness can never overcome light. One candle can be seen 40 kilometers away. Can you imagine supernaturally what goes on when the church gets serious about living a Christian life and loving others and letting the light of God shine through us? Supernaturally, it is no candle. It is like an atom bomb going off. And he says, this is what needs to happen. The light of God needs to continue to be invited in the church so both the good and the bad is exposed. And as light, because God's presence is light, comes deeper and wider like a flood into a church, suddenly everything is exposed. And this is God's kindness towards us. Let me say this again. Oh God, come. Oh God, God, come and bring revival in our church. Expose us. Illumine us. Come so close that we can't avoid you. Come so close that there won't be one secret left in this church. Why pray this? So we get broken? So we get humiliated and beat up? No. Because as God comes close, he is love. And as God comes close, he brings freedom from darkness. And as God comes close, he really shows us our condition, and he sets us free. Why are so many of you, as followers of Jesus, resisting his coming close? Don't you know you are dearly loved children? That's why he ends by saying, this is why it is said, wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine upon you. Michael Horton, a very famous pastor in the States, wrote this, some people who are in the light of the Lord, Christians, are sleeping right now in church and need to wake up. It is obvious. It's an obvious fact that Christians who are asleep don't even know they're sleeping. It's possible to be sleeping in the light, even, even when you're well regarded by other Christians in the church, especially those who are also sleeping. It is possible to be asleep and appear awake. It's possible to pray while asleep, mouthing phrases other people have used. It is possible to sing a hymn or a chorus without being awakened to the words. It is possible to walk while asleep and end up in harm's way. It is possible, he writes, as a Christian, to live a dreamy life of unreality in the netherland of inaction. And this is the cry by Paul as he talks about the unity of the church, praying for the salvation of the world. Oh, God! Among your people, you've saved out of darkness. Out of, out of all this, would you come and shine so bright by your presence and by your word that all of this is exposed and all of it is ripped out of us and we wake up as Christians and realize what's at stake? You pray for revival? This is what you're asking for. You're asking really to walk with Jesus? Here's what he's presenting. Let me end this way because It's key. Paul is dealing with the unity of the church and how the unity of the church affects each other, worshiping God, and helps others see Jesus clearly. So how would we respond to this? Well, here's the first thing I'd like to do, and ever just, again, just focus up, don't don't lose attention. It's this, first thing. We have to be willing, in a culture where rights are God, to say, not politically, not angrily, we need to say, every one of us, I'm willing to give up All things has worship to Jesus. We need to come to a place where we say, very very clearly, I lay down my rights to determine my life, and I give it to Jesus. It was Andrew Murray who wrote, The Spirit teaches me to yield my will entirely to the will of the Father. He opens my ears to wait with great gentleness and teachability of soul. And then he says this, He discovers or teaches me how to be union with God through obeying His will how entire surrender to god's will is the father's claim on us the son's example for us and the true blessedness of soul every person who's a christian in earshot of my voice this morning we have to say i lay down my sexual rights no matter where am i inclined and i say jesus i worship you we have to be able to say i lay down the sins of my tongue for the sake of worshiping jesus we need to be able to say i give up greed for the sake of jesus We need to be able to declare over time as God keeps bathing us in more and more walking with him that we say, oh God, no greed in our church. Oh God, no sexual misconduct in our church. Oh God, no sins of the tongue in our church. I am willing, I am willing, come do a new work in me. Are you willing for the sake of worship, church, to give up what you think is your right sexually? Are you willing to say to Jesus, I give you my body, my mind, and everything that I am? Are you willing to lay down your rights where you continually attack other people in your mind or with your tongue because of unforgiveness? Are you willing to say, no, Jesus, you come and change my tongue? Are you willing to say this morning, I don't want to be greedy anymore. I want to be thankful. It's interesting what John says, Jesus' best friend in 1 John 1.9 we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive our sins, and he will purify us from all unrighteousness. Here's the second thing, is thanksgiving. If we really want to see what God has started among us spread, because renewal has come, revival is, we are now experiencing the first fruits of it. Let me say this, we have to be a very thankful people. And how are we thankful? We need to say to the Spirit of God, Holy God, every time I'm getting greedy, you show me. I think we will be shocked how greedy we all are. And right when that comes up, we will quote, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Oh God, make me satisfied. How more generous do you think we all could be if we were more satisfied? The church, the will of God, and what's at stake is based in our worship. We have to lay down our rights. We need to ask God to make a middle class, educated culture thankful. That's nothing but a miracle. And lastly, we need to ask Jesus to let his light shine among us so bright, so pure, so close, no matter how uncomfortable, so each person is free in this church. Richard Foster wrote this prayer, and it is a great prayer for, for many of us. You can just put it up. Precious Savior, why do I fear your scrutiny? Yours is an examine of love. Still I'm so afraid, afraid of what may surface. Even so, I invite you to search me to the depths of who I am, so I may know myself and you in fuller measure. Do not be afraid of God who is light, because he's already called you a dearly loved child. Let's pray this way as Nikki and the band come. And by the way, the song that Nikki has picked, as we sing it, listen closely, because it is a response. But let's pray about these things. First of all, Lord, this is very difficult teaching for us, because we are people Uh, who struggle with pride and owning our destiny. And we live in a culture that has idolized rights and has said that what Jesus did of laying down his life is nice in notion, but it's not good enough for real life. But we right now, we who are praying genuinely say this to you, Jesus, number one, we lay down our sex and sexuality and our wants and desires to you, whether married or single or single again, no matter what we want or, or desire, we say, Jesus, I give you my sex life as worship right now. And I pray, actually, over this church that those who are married, that the sex lives of this church would actually be redeemed and would become beautiful and profound. I pray, though, for all of us, no matter where we are, we would be thankful for how God has assigned us at this moment, that actually our worship would be stronger than these other things. We lay down right now the issue also of greed. I don't even know how to preach this, so I'm going to ask, Lord, would you confront us with our greed? Like, just confront us in our walks and our families. And we lay down our want and desire to be greedy for the sake of Jesus Christ. And Lord, our tongue, oh, how we have slandered you and others so quickly, how we talk about others so quickly, how we joke about dark things so quickly. Lord, we, we surrender our rights to our tongues and pray for a deeper work that we would be marked by something else. Our other prayer, Lord, is make our church thankful. Thankful for our state, thankful for where we are and our age and stage, our health, our life, our finances. Lord, make us people that are thankful, that makes no sense to the world. We pray that greed would be ripped out of our church in Jesus' name. And lastly, we pray, and we pray this not for the moment, for the emotional moment, we pray it. Lord God of heaven and earth, this is your church. We are your people Come, wake us up. Wake us up. Show us our true condition, good, bad, or indifferent. Affirm us, confront us. I pray for the light of Jesus to sweep so strong in every connect group and in every family. Not one secret will be left, but as each secret comes forward and each struggle comes forward, there would be healing in the powerful name of Jesus. And lastly, we pray as we always do. Oh God, turn your eyes to Durham. Right now, look. Oh God, I beg you, look on all the lost and so change us so they will see Jesus through us. Nothing less than the kingdom of God and the reign and rule of God, a foretaste of the new heavens and the new earth now. Nothing less than that we ask for this church. In the name of the Father who took us out of darkness into light. the name of the Son who said, Not my will, but your will be done. And the name of the Holy Spirit who says, You are sealed until the day. Of redemption. Amen.